I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the All Stats Aren't We preview of the Liverpool and Villa games. I'm Darren Driver and I'm here with my friend John McKenzie. John, how are you this morning? Yeah, doing well, doing well. I'm getting into the Christmas spirit, by which I mean I'm looking forward to having a few days off, which are much needed. So feeling feeling pretty positive about everything that isn't football right now. Mm, yeah, same here. I'm, I'm uh, a bit of a Grinch uh, normally, but, but I'm looking forward to... To five days off as well, which is going to be which is going to be really nice, and I intend to sit in my pants for those five days and fill my face with all sorts of bad food and watch lots of films. So that that will be good. On and if the football gets in the way of that, well, that's just going to have to have to be how it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is a double header preview, so we'll be previewing both the Liverpool and Villa games with interviews with guests from each fan base, as we've done before and hopefully we'll settle down into something something more like our normal routine in the new year with uh, regular weekly um, previews and reviews but at the moment because things are coming a bit thick and fast and we've got we've got our own uh, availability and injury crisis within within all stats where we're, we're, we're <laughs> just doing what we can to get through things as Leeds United are um okay so before we start talking about any of the games in detail I don't know if there's any particular news uh John around I think things are just just what they are at the moment aren't they yeah I think injury wise there's a few players who are maybes to be back according to my sources Pascal Strauch Uh, apparently it's just a it's it's just a a weird like he's training but he's not doing murder ball situation okay um he was feeling some sort of pain in his foot and they're not doing the murder ball and until he I guess that's a pain subsides, uh, and he's not playing until he's doing the murder ball. So that's the, the sort of general situation with him. And um, yeah, Pat Bamford and, and Dan James. Dan James, they thought was quite seriously injured at first, apparently, but um, apparently, apparently not as bad as was feared. So um, he, he'll, he's uh, he, him and Pat Bamford are both on the maybe maybe list as well. So a few players on the way back, and obviously Furpo will be back from suspension as well. So yeah, a little bit of a better squad selection in the coming coming week that feels good you know just to hear the name the words pat banford and pascal stroke might be back 
makes me happy. It's a Christmas miracle. It's a Christmas miracle. Yeah, and, you know, if Dan James is back too, then that's fine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Dan James was also there. Dan James was also there, um, who I feel bad about being so harsh about because I'm sure he's a lovely lovely man this is entirely tongue-in-cheek this is an almost entirely entirely almost entirely (laughs) tongue-in-cheek yeah that's correct Uh, (laughs) so anyway to get to the preview so firstly john spoke to our friend john o'sullivan about liverpool being fun this season and about some tactical evolution and to no one's surprise john triggered a joel matip loving so john hi how are you i'm very well thanks thanks for having me on again yeah, it's great to have you on. Just saying before we went on on air that you've been about fourth. I think this is the fourth time maybe that we've had you on. So you're, you're becoming a bit of an old hand at this. Yeah, one of the only things I'm consistent at, I think. <laughs> well, we are here to talk about Liverpool. So let's let's jump straight in. It's been another one of those seasons where Liverpool are putting up silly numbers. And yet they've been unlucky enough to come up against another generational team in Manchester City. How do you feel at this point about Manchester City as rivals? Yeah, they're, they're a superb team. Um, I think... They've evolved in recent seasons as well to become far more defensively uh, resilient. I think Juan Malillo coming in as Pep Guardiola's assistant manager has kind of probably helped that to a certain degree. I think as well that Ruben Diaz has kind of filled the void left by Vanson Company, And also, I think Rodri uh, at the base of midfield has been, uh, has, been a, has been a great addition after maybe Somewhat of a rocky first season, but I think he's given them a lot of the things that Fernandinho previously did, plus maybe the added benefit of probably being a little bit better of a playmaker. So yeah, like you mentioned, they're uh, they're a generational side. They have that defensive resiliency that I mentioned, but they also obviously have so much incision and so much quality in the midfield and the attacking line that, you know, I can see them... getting something similar to the 97, 98, 99 points that they've previously registered. Whether Liverpool can keep up with that, I'd be slightly doubtful, only because Manchester City have banked a lot of very hard away games already. So they've been to Spurs, uh, obviously they lost that game, but they've still had that crossed off. They've won at Chelsea, they've won at Old Trafford, they've drawn at Anfield. So really, if you're looking at some of the, in inverted commas, biggest games, they've only really got Arsenal away left. And, you know, the way this season has gone, you probably fancy that, them to win that as well. So... I would say they are probably, I wouldn't say overwhelming, but they would be strong favourites for the title. And uh, that's just an unfortunate reality for Liverpool, I'm afraid. So with that in mind, what are you looking forward to in terms of Liverpool's season? Are you thinking that you should maybe focus on Champions League again and, and see if you can have joy there? Absolutely. And I think like the season that Liverpool won it uh, in 2019, and they obviously came second in the Premier League with 97 points, which is just a ridiculous thing to think about. Um I think that one would benefit the other. I think Liverpool being in the business end of two competitions in April is good for their focus because they're very much so a rhythm team, I feel. Sometimes you see Liverpool can be quite laborious and lackadaisical after an extended break, like, for instance, the first game after an international break. So I think it suits the psyche and kind of the style of this team to be playing important games regularly. I think we see the best of them in those kind of circumstances. So... um, if they can be in the business end of the title picture in in April, and I think that would really benefit them in Europe, they would be sufficiently batting hardens, I think. In terms of the season so far, have you been happy with the way that Liverpool have played? Looking back, this might be the most entertaining Liverpool side in recent in recent times. They're playing some beautiful attacking football. They maybe haven't been as defensively solid as they would have been in other seasons, but that is, I think, understandable given the fact that 
Van Dijk is just coming back from a really serious in- injury and he's kind of rotated his centre-back stock quite a lot. So a lot of the players, like for instance, Konate hasn't really had the chance to build up synergy with others. But uh, so far, extremely happy. I think the results have been brilliant. I mean, the European the European campaign has has been uh, record-breakingly good for an English side. Um, but I think the main thing is just how enjoyable they've been. And like, there's been an evolution in the play. They've been... I think far more attacking, far more fluent in attack, and they've involved their midfielders in attack in a way that they hadn't previously. I think the biggest criticism Liverpool have faced over the last five or so years has been, yes, they've been very good, but they've always employed like a workman-like midfield. But I think that's totally different this season, and you can see that in the fact that they've been scoring so often. Maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I've got a question here about whether or not there are any sort of issues that you're seeing with this Liverpool team that you hadn't anticipated at the beginning of the season. Uh, again, maybe that's just because we've obviously had a, a fairly poor season in, in, in a lot of respects. But is, are there any things that you've noticed around the edges where you thought, oh, I didn't expect this to be a problem for us? Sometimes, um, like I mentioned previously, like Klopp has kind of restructured the midfield this season. So, yes, it's a 4-3-3, but the right-sided central midfielder whether it's been Harvey Elliott before he was injured or whether it was Jordan Henderson or whether sometimes it's been Naby Keita, they've been given a lot more freedom to bomb forward and to join the attack. So in in some in some phases of play, Liverpool are kind of playing a 4-2-4 with Fabinho and Thiago being the disciplined sitting midfielders and then just like four other players, the front three plus the midfielder, really committed to attacking and really uh, trying to stretch the play and to get themselves into the box. So... But the trade-off with that has been sometimes Liverpool have looked a little bit vulnerable in transition. Um, There's been a couple of instances, especially away to West Ham, where it felt like Fabinho had to defend a massive part of the pitch by himself. And the structure has kind of been a little bit bit unreliable defensively. Uh, I think since West Ham, in, in credit to Liverpool, they've kind of... They've kind of nullified that a little bit. Um, in the Spurs game yesterday, you saw they were quite vulnerable to the transition, but the context of that was their first-choice midfield was missing and they had they had an 18-year-old kid in Tyler Morton playing as a number six. They had James Milner, who hasn't played 90 minutes all season, and Naby Keita, likewise, playing ahead of him. So it was always going to be a little bit mismatched and lack a little bit of a nuance, defensive nuance and understanding of each other's games. So... I think that has been somewhat of an issue uh, that it hasn't really cost them too many times barring the West Ham game because that's their only defeat. But I think weighing it up, I think the team is better now because it has made them so much better in attack. So it's the short blanket thing. It can't always cover everything. Well, I've got a few questions about the tactical uh, evolution of this season, which you've already sort of touched on. Is there anything that you would add to that? Is there any other things that you've seen that have uh, suggested that Klopp's doing things slightly different this season? Yes, and I think this is because Liverpool have had a full preseason for the first time in many, many years. The majority of their players, because of injuries, um, had, that had missed out on the Euros and because they don't have so many England players that were called up by them, uh, means that they had basically everybody available from July 1st to go through preseason. And I think that's why we've seen this evolution. Whereas previously, there's been big commercial tours abroad and there's been like players coming back in a staggered time frame from Copa America and Euro Championships, etc. So I think that's partly the reason why we've seen this. Another tactical element that I've really noticed is how wide Klopp is playing his uh, wide players. So Sadio Mane or Mohamed Salah, like they are inverted wingers. Like I wouldn't get that wrong. For instance, we'll never see Salah playing on the left. But a lot of the time they're hugging the touchlines and then we're seeing the fullbacks, either Robertson or Alexander-Arnold playing infield. 
Now, that's not a surprise for people who watch Trent regularly because he's really given a lot of latitude in the team to kind of do what he wants in terms of attack. He'll pop up centrally, he'll pop up by the byline. He plays in a half space a lot. But Robertson has really added that to his game this season. And uh, he's he's looked quite good at it for many years. I think he was kind of typecast as like the maybe the meat and two veg fullback who hits the byline and just swings and crosses. But he's kind of added that extra element to his game this season. And uh, he actually got an assist for uh, out of it in the Merseyside derby for Jordan Henderson, where you saw Mane tight on the left touchline. He plays a, a pass infield to Robertson that finds his underlapping run. And then Robertson drags it back for Henderson to finish. So that's another new element that uh, that we've seen to his play. And it always feels like he tries to not copy, but he's so competitive with Trent Alexander-Arnold that they always try to like add the same elements to their game. So, for instance, like two seasons ago, Robertson just decided that he could take corners. And all of a sudden, he was really good at taking them after seeing Trent do it. And now it's like he's noticed that Trent was so good in the half spaces and playing centrally. He's like, I need to add this string to my bow. And... So far, he's doing it in a much, much more improved fashion than he did previously. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the structure because you mentioned that that despite the fact you're playing 4-3-3 every game this season, basically, that that you are sort of seeing it evolve into a into a situational 4-2-4. Do you think that 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 Klopp will will ever move away from that 4-3-3 structure? I don't think so. I think part of that is Pepin Linder's influence. Um, he is a very very died in the world Dutch four three three Cruyffian kind of a coach. He 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 always references how he will watch like the Barcelona dream team of Cruyff, even though they play three four three quite a lot, but they also like would play four three three sometimes. So I think I think that might be his influence on that. I think the issue really is I don't think they feel like when if they don't have one of Fabinho or Thiago that they can really play a two man midfield because if you look at the rest of the Liverpool players, I don't think they're that suited to playing in a double pivot. So I think just in terms of maybe a little bit of uh, practicality and a, and a little bit of, uh, you know, just suiting the players they have at their disposal, I think the 4-3-3 suits them best. Sometimes, though, for instance, like the away game at Wolves where Divock Origi scored a really late winner, they switched to a 4-2-3-1 to see out the game. And that's because they had Thiago uh, and Fabinho. So sometimes you'll see them change in game, but very rarely. So I think the four three three is here to stay. And I mean, on the evidence on the evidence that we've seen so far, it's going quite well. But it'll be interesting to see when they sign their next raft of midfielders because Thiago is thirty one, Henderson is thirty, Milner is thirty seven or thirty six. You know, there's they're going to have to start replacing these players sooner rather than later. And whether they play. They sign players to fit that four-three-three structure, or they sign players when I of pivoting away and maybe going to a four-two-three run will be interesting. But I think in the immediate future, I can't see them shifting from the four-three-three. We talked earlier in the season about how um, Diogo Jota is going to become a successor to Roberto Firmino and, and the sort of tactical um, impact that that will have. What have you made of this so far this season? This this Diogo Jota playing as a as a basically as a centre forward. Yeah, I've quite liked it. Uh, initially, I was quite sceptical because for the longest time, Firmino has been a brilliant facilitator for, Sa- for Salah and Mane. The way he interprets the number nine role, as Klopp would say, the way he like finds space between the lines and you know takes the ball in tight areas has been superb and it's really given Liverpool a brilliant, brilliant outlet. But since Jota has been the number nine, um, like I had mentioned before, this, this change in structure at the midfield kind of means 
that there is less onus on the number nine to be the playmaker because there's more there's more players committed to attack. So not everything is funneled through them. It's not you have to turn here and supply a true ball or bust. Liverpool have way more have way more options, way more ability to change a point of attack. So it's kind of lessened the need for the number nine to be this playmaker. So that's kind of suited Jota more because yes, he can link the play. It's not to say he can't, but it's not his natural game. He he's really a goal poacher, and I think that he's added he's added a really new element to Liverpool in that regard. Because number one, he is deceptively brilliant in the air. You wouldn't think it because he's not the biggest man, but his movement is such that he invariably finds himself in the right place to meet a, to meet across the header, like we saw yesterday against Spurs. So that's really giving Liverpool a new option. And uh, he's also very adept at pressing the ball, quite like uh, Firmino. So I think really when you look back in the last year or two, he's probably been one of the best Premier League signings by anybody. And it's probably surprised a lot of people how well he's adapted. So it, it, it's a kind of a, it's a nice balance because he can play his natural game, which is to be a goal poacher. But he can also offer a little bit, maybe not to the extent of Firmino. But like I mentioned, the tactical shift means he probably doesn't have to. But he can still link the play somewhat, and uh, he always offers a great work rate. So, I think I think right now, if you were to weigh it up and see who would be the first choice number nine for Liverpool, I think it would be Jota over Firmino. Let's talk at this point about the other three in that four three three, the midfield three. Um, you've already mentioned that against Spurs, you played with the midfield of James Milner, Tyler Morton, and Naby Keita. Yeah, again, you touched on this, but Liverpool are kind of funny for playing midfielders that most people would think a non-elite. Um, so I'm interested in what you think makes for a decent midfielder in this Liverpool side. And and maybe you could touch a little bit more on what you said about maybe bringing in a more elite midfielders into that into that uh, midfield three. I think, first of all, in fairness to Liverpool midfielders, like they get a lot of criticism. Uh, and at times it, it's, it's deserved, don't get me wrong, but it is a very hard role to play. It's very nuanced. It's very self-sacrificing. It's very, it's full of running, it's full of tactical discipline. So I don't think it's really, I don't think it's the easiest role to play whatsoever. But I think the main thing that you see between, say, Liverpool's starting midfielders, which to my mind would be uh, Thiago, Fabinho and Henderson, would be like the tactical discipline and the appreciation of space. There's a, when Fabinho and Thiago play together, for instance, Liverpool's record, win record is superb. Their goals conceded record is superb. Their goals scored record is superb because they're two really intelligent footballers who kind of understand understand spatially where they are in the pitch, understand when to press, understand when to cover, and they have a really nice synergy together. But then you see when Liverpool kind of alter that, it's not quite the same. Like if you take Naby Keita, who is a superb player, anything he does with the ball is excellent. His tackle race is excellent, intercepts, blocks, etc. But that's event data. Sometimes off the ball where you expect him to cover a teammate who's pressing and vice versa, he mightn't be quite as strong. And this can expose Liverpool because, I mean, if one guy juts out of position, then there is a massive space in the middle of the pitch for uh, for the opposition to exploit. So I think maybe you could say quite similar things uh, about Leeds, for instance. Maybe sometimes Calvin Phillips can be uh, exposed by other teammates pressing. So it's quite a difficult thing. And I think I think the, the key to it really is having that synergy between the players and having that experience of playing together. So I guess that's probably more difficult in the Liverpool midfield because they look to rotate in their midfield like no other. But if I were to sign anyone for Liverpool midfield right now, the key thing that I would look for is that tactical intelligence, which is probably the hardest thing to spot from a scouting and analytical point of view because event data is great, but it doesn't always tell the full story. So 
that would be what I would prioritize. I'm interested in your thoughts on a few players. So the first player um, we should talk about is Ibrahima Kanate, who you talked about in the first episode we recorded this season. You were quite excited about him at the beginning of the season. So you've had the chance to see him play a little bit of senior football. So have you been impressed with him? I think comfortably, yes. Um, One or two games where he's perhaps looks a little bit out of sync with his teammates, but obviously that's to be expected. He's 22 years old. He's in a new league. He's playing with new teammates. Similar type of play to Leipzig, but not totally. So there's that adaptation period to come. But uh, invariably, I've been very, very impressed with him. Probably the only thing that I would have a criticism about him is that he sometimes doesn't always hold the offside line as well as others might. But again, like the only way to fix that is more regular game time. But uh, so far, he's looked brilliant um, aerially. He's looked very fast and strong. He's ambitious with the ball. He's he's somewhat like Matip in the way he can carry the ball out from the back with those long spindly legs and he's breaking lines through carrying the ball. So, so far, I've been very impressed with him. And it's interesting because Liverpool have, have stationed him on the left side of the defence. That's where Van Dijk plays. But I wonder when Van Dijk comes back from his COVID-enforced break, might we see the pair of them together with Kanate on the right-hand side? That would be very interesting because I think... Him playing next to Van Dijk would probably iron out a few of those creases that I mentioned, such as like holding the offside trap because of just how vocal Van Dijk is. So I think maybe if you were to ask me like this time next year, what would I think would be Liverpool's first choice pairing? I could easily see it being uh, Kanate and Van Dijk. And now that sounds like massive disrespect to Matip, who's a superb <laughs> player. But, uh, I think I think uh, Kanate's ceiling is just so high that I could see him being the first choice in uh, the next year or so. Yeah, you've anticipated my next question because uh, as people who follow me on Twitter might know, I'm a bit of a fan of Joel Matip. So interested in your thoughts on him. Is he, He's obviously an underrated player and I think Leeds fans probably underrated him until he came to Elland Road and just ran through our lines at will and was certainly responsible for one of the goals being scored by Liverpool. So thoughts on Joel Matip and should we expect more of his running at Anfield on Boxing Day? I absolutely love him because he's such a rarity in modern football in that he's a really magnanimous footballer. He has no social media presence. He like he doesn't seem to seek the limelight in any ways whatsoever. It's it's almost like he works in a post office or something. He just treats it like his job. He turns up and then he goes home and no one hears from him. He uh he he he's such a legend in terms of his mannerisms on the pitch and how funny he is and that's obviously kind of made a cult social uh, media following for him. But uh, as a player, I think he's superb and he's vastly underrated. He's excellent in the air. Like you mentioned, he can break the lines with both dribbling and passing. He has a great relationship with Van Dijk in that Van Dijk is um, Van Dijk is more the cajoler and the controller where Massive kind of plays a little bit more aggressively and they've worked, they've worked on that partnership really well. So I think uh, he's certainly one of the most underrated players, which sounds weird because you think in the social media era, it would be hard for underrated players to exist anymore. But I certainly think he fits into that category. Um, whether or not we'll see him against Leeds, is hard to know because of Van Dijk's COVID. It means Massive has probably had to have played more recently than he invariably would have. Obviously, the only real check against his name in his Liverpool career has been his injury record. So I think Klopp would be very mindful to give him an appropriate amount of rest unless they want to risk losing him. So depending on whether Van Dijk can come back for the Leeds game, I think it might be the 11th day after the 10th day of isolation. But I don't know whether that means he'll be sufficiently match ready. But in the scenario where he is ready, I wouldn't be surprised to see um, Van Dijk or Gomez or Van Dijk and Kanate. 
But uh, yeah, Matip is probably one of my favorite Liverpool players. And when you think about it, he was a free signing from Schalke. He's probably not on massive wages. I think he can be one of the major feather in the caps of uh, Jurgen Klopp and Michael Edwards when they look back at their transfers at Liverpool. Uh, one final player that we should talk about, not on the running order, but I'm sure you'll be able to um, ad-lib on this because we obviously saw Harvey Elliott getting a, an injury against Leeds last time around, uh, which was such a shame because, as you've mentioned, he was quite important to the tactical evolution that we've seen at Liverpool this season. So um, Harvey Elliott is on the mend. Um, how important do you think that that injury has been for the way that Liverpool have played this season? I don't think they've really altered the style of play because he's missing, but I think him playing there was really like a kind of a harbinger of what was to come. And it was kind of, it kind of showed us what Liverpool wanted to do going forward. So I think that injury was a massive blow for him, but um, hopefully he can recover from it properly because he was never the quickest player. So even you're thinking, even if it would somewhat blunt a little bit of his ex- explosivity, I don't think that would have a major impact on his game. Um, he was very impressive as the season started. Like I mentioned, uh, he was playing as a right-sided central midfielder, which I thought was quite strange because you had two left-footers on the right-hand channel, if you get what I mean. You had Salah as the attacker, and then you had Elliot as a right-sided central midfielder. And I figured that it might make the pitch very narrow at a certain point, but because of Salah has been playing quite wide, they kind of dovetail quite nicely. I think the best instance of what he gave was a goal we scored against Burnley, where there was a long ball played to Elliot on the right-hand touchline, and then he managed to play the ball infield to Alexander-Arnold, who was in a position that you would associate with a central midfielder. And then he played the true ball to Mane to score. So it kind of showed Liverpool's ability to switch the point of attack to have so many players switching from what you would say would be their traditional areas of the pitch that they would occupy. So I think he showed that Liverpool can play like this. And I think he showed that he is capable of playing in the Premier League. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to see him come back. I think there might be an opportunity when the African Cup of Nations is on, which I, I can't believe is still going ahead, but it looks like it is. Uh, there might be an opportunity for him to play on the right side of the attack as well instead of Salah. So I think he'll be a great addition to welcome back to the squad because he can cover so many roles. Let's start thinking about the game itself on Boxing Day. So um, you're coming into this game with Leeds off the back of a three-game losing streak, which I believe is the first time this has happened in Bielsa's tenure. It's obviously a good time to play us, but what have you made of Leeds so far this season as a neutral? I think they've really kind of missed Calvin Phillips in a lot of instances. Um, I also think that their their defensive injuries have kind of crippled them. Uh, at times they've kind of they've looked quite good going forward, but uh, they've looked very vulnerable to uh, to the counter attack so far. I think um, you know a lot of time I think Bielsa has kind of varied from man marking to zonal marking, but in some instances it seems like when they go man to man, it's so easy to play through them and play around them, and then all of a sudden it's like a game of basketball. Their back line is facing four or five opposition players running at them. So I guess with that style of play, it's high risk, high reward. And I think uh, the risk has been much more prevalent than the award this season or the reward this season. But um, certainly I don't think they'll go down. Um, They could go down. And I think a lot of that would depend on what Newcastle are able to do in January. But I think they should surely have too much quality come the end of the season. And uh, I'd say they will stay up. And in terms of the game itself, we should say there is always the chance that it might not happen because of COVID. But uh, in terms of injuries and suspensions ahead of this game, how are Liverpool looking? Because you obviously had a fairly bare squad for the the Spurs game, as we've already talked about. And it could be even worse by then, of course, because there could be more cases. But if we 
are to take that spurt uh, that uh, Lee's game as being the eleventh day after Fabinho, Jones, and Van Dijk have been in isolation, then they could possibly be back. Uh, Henderson missed the Spurs game, but he doesn't actually have COVID. He actually just had a flu. Uh, probably hard to distinguish between the two nowadays. Um, so he could be back, uh, but Thiago will certainly miss it. So they could have maybe probably 80% of the squad that they would have had available, which is which will probably be a lot better than what they had at Spurs. So um, I think they won't be full strength, but they'll be somewhere close to it. Um, I think Leeds might welcome a few players back from that game too. So it'll probably boost their chances but like if you were to look at that at form you would certainly fancy Liverpool and also just because of the style of play Leeds play I think that kind of plays into Liverpool's hands somewhat would you like to hazard a guess at what the lineup would look like on on Boxing Day okay so I'm going to be totally wrong but um <laughs> I think it would be Allison, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold I think it could be Gomez and Kanate because I'm I'm not quite sure whether Van Dijk will be back or whether he'll be able to play regardless of that I think it'll be Simicast left back. Of course, it'll definitely be Simicast left back because Robertson will be suspended after his red card at Spurs. I think they'll probably play Henderson as a number six, which isn't ideal, but he's the best at it apart from Fabinho. I think it could probably be Keita in one centre midfield spot and Oxlade Chamberlain in another centre midfield spot. Oxlade Chamberlain has his inconsistencies, but I actually think he would sue the game against Leeds because he's so good at carrying the ball between the lines and he's so direct. And uh, I think the front three would be Mane, Mane uh, Jota and Salah. I couldn't see that changing. And as you all know, I don't ask for predictions, but um, I am interested in where you think the game will be won or lost at the at the weekend. So how would you answer that question? I think it will be the midfield. I think Liverpool might have, if they play Keita and Oxlade-Chamberlain, I think they might have too much guile and directness in their midfield for Leeds. And I think that would be... I think that would be the ideal platform to give the front three to perform. So I think the midfield is going to be the key battlegrounds. I know everybody always says that it's like a hackneyed cliche, like if you win the midfield, you win the game. But I think it'll be especially important in this game. Well, John, it's always great having you on. What's the best way for our listeners to catch up what you're putting out in the, in the football world? Yeah, you can follow me at NotoriousJOS on Twitter. Well, thank you, buddy, for coming on. Have a great Christmas. Thanks. Same to you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, interesting stuff there from John. So, other John, how are you feeling about the, about the Liverpool game? Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? I mean, Liverpool at Anfield is up there with the hardest games of the season. So um, in many respects, I'm treating it as a free hit game. Um, it, it would be nice to have some of those players back that we've already mentioned, so just get just to get them some minutes. Um, so there was a lot of people talking about, you know, maybe this game being cancelled and up helping us out. But it's sort of one of those games where I just kind of think, let's just get it out of the way, get it done with and uh, move on to a, a nicer tranche of fixtures um, but Liverpool just just playing really really well at the moment um, they've they've obviously come on 
on leaps and bounds under Jurgen Klopp and um, yeah even just thinking back to what they were before he arrived and now just one of the most thrilling attacking teams in in the league um, and yeah it's just been really fascinating seeing how they've developed tactically because obviously they turned up wanting to play that sort of high intensity football that, that Klopp was playing in the Bundesliga but they've obviously because they um, started challenging at the top of the table they had to develop a little bit more of a possession based game so it's been interesting seeing some of those um, developments so yeah interesting hearing John talking about the way that Harvey Elliott was being used before his injury um, and, and they were doing similar stuff to what we see from Manchester City and even Leeds you know that that sort of build up in wide areas to try and isolate fullbacks on the opposite side um so yeah it'll be fascinating to see how how they how they line up but yeah for me very much a sort of uh hopefully we can we we can get something out of the game hopefully we don't fold like we didn't like we did in the last few games against big sides so um that's kind of how i'm i'm approaching it i'm afraid a little bit more of the negative end of the spectrum i think that's a more positive way of looking at it than mine to be honest john because because for me it's just one of those games where i think of it and i just think oh god we're probably going to get absolutely humped here and that's not a nice way for me to spend boxing day whereas i think you're kind of well it is what it is we'll just get it out of the way and 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 move on to the next one feels like a, a more a more positive way whereas i'm kind of stressing about getting walloped well last season and the Anfield game was the first game we've had in the Premier League right after our return and okay we lost 4-3 we played pretty much as well as we could hope and we were a little bit fortuitous in that we finished every chance that we had basically um and we still lost and so that was us like still at our peak and and you know that was Liverpool not at their peak that was the beginning of their season where they weren't that great so um those those fortunes have definitely reversed so I think it's just one of those ones where you just have to grin and bear it or maybe grimace and bear it I don't know one of the two but um yeah it's if you look at the underlying numbers in the Premier League at the moment it's just so mismatched um that that you know, the Liverpool and City are just so far ahead of everyone else that um, I just think it's you just sort of take your medicine with this sort of game. But at the same time, you have to take the positives from that, which are that the, the league is now so misweighted that that actually it gives us a huge uh, benefit that that we're actually more likely to stay up because there is that 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 inequality between the top and the bottom so there's much fewer points available at the bottom of the table I think so you know on the one hand yeah as you say it's one of those games where you think well maybe we'll get turned over but at the same time like in the long run that, that will probably keep us up so yeah no I, I totally appreciate that and just to speak to that a little bit John because like when when you say that that City and Liverpool's underlying numbers, <laughs> excuse me, underlying numbers are of a different order. Um, what's the sort of magnitude of that that we're looking at? Have you have you got the figures to hand? The best way of looking at this is um, the the expected goal difference. Usually, I mean, obviously, the you know there's outliers in in that respect, but at this point in the season, we're basically this is a halfway point for us. This game, um, so it, it does give a good indication of where of where teams are at. And um, yeah, in terms of the expected goal difference, uh, City are top with plus thirty two expected goals so they've they've generated 32 more expected goals than they've conceded uh liverpool 26.9 uh obviously city have have run away a little bit because they put up so much against us and then you drop down 16 plus 16 for chelsea and then below chelsea it's plus three for crystal palace so we're talking we're talking like 10 times bigger than fourth place man city are at the minute um and i won't i won't say anything about where we're at in this table because i have no interest <laughs> in that not particularly not particularly strong and i would imagine okay well that 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 is that's really interesting and it shows that, that really it's a different game being played by by the two 
two teams at the top and to, to a slightly less degree Chelsea. Okay, that's interesting. So let's think um, a little bit about the structures uh, and teams of the of, of the forthcoming game on Boxing Day then. So Liverpool will line up in a 4-3-3 to absolutely nobody's surprise. And as a result of that, we will line up in something that looks like a 4-1-4-1-4-2-3-1, depending on what the phase of play is for Liverpool and where their midfielders move to. So I don't think there's anything particularly surprising there, is there, John? No, it's just the same structures, just with the matching up in the midfield, it will just depend on how their midfield three set up. So yeah, I, I anticipate it will be a 4-3-3 with us playing 4-1-4-1. And I guess in terms of team news, I want to... Give the caveat, which John sort of um, referenced earlier on, that there are some moving parts to the um, possible team selection. So I'm guessing that most of the people who weren't available for Arsenal are still out, but potential returns for Strauch and Bamford and James. Um, and hopefully there aren't any more positive COVID cases in the camp because that, that obviously would, would throw things into more disarray. So as you said before, Junior returns from his suspension um, for the Boxing Day fixture. How do you think that helps us, John? Well, I mean, it helps us to have anyone fit at the moment and available. So <laughs> um, in that respect, it's good. Um, in terms of defensively, we've, we've already seen him play against Liverpool and he was okay against Mo Salah. Um, I think we've talked before about how he's he's fairly good defending against, um, I suppose, more explosive dribblers. Um, so hopefully that will that will bear out um in in this game um and i mean like he's the only option we have so we have to say, again we sort of have to grin and, grin and bear it but I, the helpful thing for us is that it, it just gives us a little bit more license to um move players around um and and not have to field quite so many under 23s as we did i think he will improve us in build up too won't he i think from from the way we've been previously i think he's like i think he's better in terms of supporting our deep build-up, yeah, for sure. I mean, it depends how the game goes. If if we, it, it, I guess it will be an open game. The the game at uh, Elland Road was fairly open, um, so any option to get him with the ball at his feet and space in front of him, I think, will be good. Um, and I think like some of the some of the early numbers that are coming out showing showing that he's playing okay in terms of his ball progression. Um, I've seen a few. There's, there seems to have been a flurry of sort of. Um, XY plots going around which show various things for various positions and I think he shows up okay in, in some of those so yeah it'll be the same sorts of things with with Junior it's, it's you expect him to be okay on the ball and then you you sort of worry a little bit about about the off ball stuff and I, I, I don't even think there's any rhyme or reason to it because you know you I would have thought that against Liverpool um, at Elland Road it would have been maybe one of his more nervy games but I don't think that was the case and then you see him come up against someone like Brighton who you might not expect anything from and you're just expecting him to get sent off at any moment so yeah it's it's one of those where I, I think on the balance of what we saw last time yeah it should be okay and hopefully we'll be able to get him into those situations where we're playing in in fairly um, counter-attacking circumstances and we can use him to sort of stretch his legs and, and get into those wide areas and I guess that does raise a question for us about how and where we'll use um, where we'll use Dallas because uh, I, I wasn't aware that those players might be coming back. Um, so I was kind of assuming that Luke Ailin would be needed at left centre back again and Robin Cock at right centre back, and that leaves a question about whether Dallas or Drama plays at right back in that case. So what would you expect to see if that was the case? Yeah, I think that we'll see Dallas at right back over Drame. Um I think Drame was just too open. Um, and and off the pace a little bit against Arsenal. I know I, I know that there's there's obviously ten, ex, extenuating circumstances, um, 
but I just don't think you can risk that again. I I'm all for him developing um, within the within the senior game, but I think it, maybe 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 a game the game like this isn't that important in terms of like um, in terms of like the result, but in terms of the player's development to to have him sort of play for a, a, a gobbing at the hands of Arsenal and then and then a likely gobbing at the hands of Liverpool, for example, would be would be not good for him um, in the long run. Um, so I would expect Dallas to be to be moved back there. Um, the obviously the other option is that if Strauch is back, you just sort of shift everyone along. So then you have Cocker right right centre back, and then Ailing at right back, and then then I suspect it might be Dallas in 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 the midfield. But um, we're certainly approaching a point where where the, there are questions about who we actually do feel in midfield um, because we will have a glut of midfielders. Um, a few of whom you probably wouldn't want to see in midfield, but that's another another question entirely. Yeah, all I want for Christmas is a backline of Ailing, Cox, Strauch, and Furpo, and, and I don't I don't <laughs> think it's too much to ask for, is it? You know, I don't think so. I don't think so. No. So yeah, in terms of the the midfield stuff, um, if Dallas does play at right back, I guess that means that that Click starts again, p- perhaps, um, and against a midfield who can run direct or against more vertical play, I feel like that can really expose Click at times. Um, and I guess from um, from what John was saying, if he expects uh, Naby Keita and, and Oxlade-Chamberlain to play, they're both quite good direct runners with the ball. And I think that, that that could cause us some problems. So what are your thoughts around all that, John? Yeah, it's always a big question, I guess, in my head. is like, what personnel do the opposition choose to play against us? Do they, do they mix it up? Because we often see surprising additions to opponents lineups I mean for example Tarek Lamptey playing as a uh, wide player um, in the advanced areas rather than as a, as a fullback was something that I didn't expect I mean obviously makes a lot of sense when you when you think about it so um, and then obviously we've seen Thomas Tuchel experiment with with maybe unusual lineups because he's trying to uh, make the most of pulling leads um, and marking apart. So uh, I'm also sort of interested to see what what the opposition manager does to to facilitate good ball carriers. Um, that said, I think sometimes when you play against elite sides, they're just quite happy to be like, we'll play our game and we'll expect our game to be good enough to be able to beat whatever tactical setup the opposition have. So it could be the case that the Klopp will just go with the same sort of uh, approach, especially because I think that if the game does become transitional, even though that will suit Leeds to us to an extent, Liverpool at the moment are one of the most elite transitional sides. So um, yeah, I think... I think it will be. A, we saw it. Ellen Road. Um, Rodrigo had that big chance really early on and and, and missed. And everyone is, likes to talk about that as a what if. But um, Liverpool also put up four xG or something in that game. And the only reason it wasn't a complete battering was because Sadio Mane seemingly forgot how to finish. So um, I think it will be. It, I, I expect it to be a similar game to that. Um, so quite an open game uh, and they'll just rely on the fact that they'll be able to finish generate more chances and finish them better so um, yeah it'll be interesting to see how the midfield are but I think they Liverpool obviously get a lot of their edge from having two very elite fullbacks who are able to you know build they're able to build up the play in the wide areas so um, I'm not sure whether or not they'll worry too much about the fact that we might be a little bit soft in the middle and if I am looking for reasons to be hopeful maybe Van Dijk being Probably, probably being out due to COVID is one of them. I think from a defensive point of view, because I think he's probably the best centre back in the world, um, and also because he causes a lot of problems from attacking set pieces when when he plays against us. So I don't know. Help me out, John. How much hope does that offer um, for us? 
Yeah, well, you've already mentioned that I'm a big fan of Joel Matip, so um, I do think that Liverpool have decent options um, at centre back. They've they've also got Ibrahima Kanate, who is a player that I'm pretty high on as well. Um, yeah. Someone they brought in from RB Leipzig, and uh, for the people who watch a lot of German football, was actually the better option out of their. Upamakano, who went to Bayern Munich, so they've obviously got a, a lot of options in in that in that battle line. They've got Joe Gomez as well. Um, so, I, I, yeah, Van Dijk being out is going to hurt any team because because, like you say, he's he's definitely up there amongst the the very best in the world. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure that that will necessarily mean that that there'll be a, a gaping hole in their defence. So. <laughs> I didn't think it would quite mean that. But yeah, I take your point. Uh, where can we hurt them, John? Where can we hurt them? Because that's what we've got to, you know, when we think about these games where teams are likely to dominate, as I always like to try and think about where, where there might be opportunities for us. And I struggle to find them really against Liverpool. And given your um, the way you just exhaled, I'm thinking you might be thinking the same thing too. <laughs> well, yeah, the last time we played them, the only way we hurt them was by taking out their one of their precocious talents. So, um, yeah, I... Yeah, I don't know. I, look, it's one of those games where it, it is probably going to be a fairly transitional game. And when we talked to Jack McCormack in the Manchester City um, preview, he was saying that you know that, that that's that's kind of the point. Um, if it's a high-scoring game for both sides, you don't look at that and say, "Oh, it was a poor game defensively." You just you just accept that both teams have decided to to go attacking and see what they can get out of that transitional um, style. So. Yeah, I expect it to be um, a fairly fairly open game, and and with that comes the the possibility that that you know you could cause an upset, I suppose. But for for me, as I said before, you know it, it was when we played them at Elland Road and we we lost three nil. That felt like a quote unquote lucky result because it could have been much more. So um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like maybe, maybe we the way we hurt them is um, we get an early goal through transition, and then they get a player sent off, and then and then we draw one one. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, and that leads on to the next question. So there are no enormous tactical surprises coming. We know that the Liverpool tactical approach will be intense counter press uh, and um, lots of transitional play, and that they are elite, and that their front three can tear absolutely any team apart. So what is the best we're hoping for? Is it that we just keep the score down or is it that we nick an ugly draw? Or what, what, what can we realistically hope for from this game, John? As we opened with, basically, this is we're, we're talking about like a different level of, of football. We, we've already said, you know, it's a, an order of magnitude bigger than, than what we're expecting from, from the teams that, that are around us. Well, we're, we're lower than that, but like there's it, such a big discrepancy between the teams at the top of this league and, and the teams at the bottom with us that I, I don't know you, you get this conversation don't you in the Bundesliga like what what's it does it does it question the, the the sanctity of the league if you have teams who are just hands and away better than than everyone else um and I you know that's a philosophical question for another day but the the the, the point is is that I, I don't think there's any shame in losing to Liverpool with a fully fit squad um and you just have to sort of, as I said, grin and bear it. And, and as I said before, just sort of focus on the fact that, well, we're going to lose to Liverpool, but most other teams in the league are going to lose to Liverpool as well. So you're almost treating it as a league of 18, maybe a, a league of 17. And they're the, the games that you're going to approach as the games that you should win. I, I know this is very, very negative, but I'm, I'm trying to sort of find some sort of positive from it. Like I say, I don't think you're approaching it in a particularly negative way. I think you're approaching it pragmatically. Um, and I think that what should happen 
happen is maybe those elite teams in each league should go form a separate league and let the rest of them get on with it. <laughs> Don't know what you think. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe not the worst idea in the world. <laughs> let's move on from uh, from Liverpool and let's start to think about Villa. So, secondly, uh, John spoke to James Rushton about Steven Gerrard's attitudes, uh, hopefully not the ones about Phil Collins, um, about Villa's pragmatism and... James also definitively names the best worst footballer in the world. Let's see if you can guess who it is. So, James, hi, how are you? I'm all good, thank you, John. Uh, of course, the postponement of football and everything else going on in the world. The uh, postponement of the last Villa match uh, annoyed me, but what can you do, John? What can you do? All good apart from that. Yeah, good to hear. And uh, things are going relatively well at Villa at the moment, so uh, I suspect it's easier to talk about football when, when that's the case. I've written on the on the running order, it's a funny one talking to you about Villa for a few reasons. So firstly, we don't even know if this game is going to go ahead. It's still up in the air. Secondly, you're the last team we have left to play this season so far. So it's the last team where we um, have, have a few unknowns as it is. And thirdly, to add to those unknowns, you have a, a new manager who's making you much better than your old manager was, at least in the short term. So uh, where do we begin? I guess um, let's just talk about the season so far. It's been pretty good so far, right? Yeah, been up and down. Um, Dean Smith had a, a wobble and he couldn't get out of that wobble. Stephen Gerrard came in and we've looked like a really impressive, really strong unit. Um, of course, I think it, as a fairly recently promoted side, any season that isn't involving the question of relegation, I feel, I mean, I mean, this applies to us both, is an extremely positive season. Um, in my mind, I think there's a lot of Villa fans that are probably impatient and want us to just win the, the Champions League immediately, which is, of course is not ever going to happen. But with the owners we've got, you know, disagree with him. You know, I disagree with him enough, but Christian Persler, the CEO, the chief executive, uh, is driven. Seems like we're going in the right direction. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a really good time to be a Villa fan. But again, I won't be able to inflict any of this on you if the game doesn't go ahead. You were quite reticent about Steven Gerrard, actually, when we first spoke about him as Villa manager. Uh, obviously, you had a, a lot of good memories of times with Dean Smith, but you must be quite happy now. Yeah, I'm really happy. I think I fell into a trap with Steven Gerrard. I've just um, taken in the general, you know, your ex-football player who becomes a coach and it seems like they're fast-tracked. But if you look at Gerrard and the path he took compared to, say, a Frank Lampard, I think there's there's a number of key differences. I think there's a number of key differences in their personality. And I feel comparing a Gerrard and even at a lighter extent, your, your Gerrard and your Rooney to a Lampard or Gary Neville who kind of just was given a job immediately in that sense um you can fall into that trap it's really easy to think that they just got the job on the name there is something about Steven Gerrard um that I've become swept up by um almost immediately after he joined the club uh his personality it seems like there's a real kind of working class anxiety that drives at him he doesn't want to let anybody down um and he's fierce the way he spoke about Liverpool I was, I was almost offended <laughs> you know and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Villa fan but look that's the character he is there's a there's a ferocity about him John there's an edge uh there's a kind of a, a mentality there that win win has won over the players after a after a Dean a manager Dean Smith who embodied the football club he was the football club so to come in build on his work get the get to grips with the players and move on straight away it's blown me entirely away I'm I'm the biggest fan of Steven Gerrard but look it's, it could be a new manager bounce whatever um, he'll have his problems and we'll see the true making of Gerrard when there's a, a tough time and how he bounces out of that as we do with all managers uh, but John after our conversation I think in November really really happy with how he's gone 
Yeah, and I think the results back that up. I think the only two teams that you've lost to have been Liverpool and Manchester City. Um, so manager bounce or not, it's clearly heading in the right direction. So with all that in mind, what are your expectations for the rest of the season now? I'd really like if we could just finish uh, at a canter ninth, eighth. I think our early season form may have let us down. Um, you know, we, we, we lost or stumbled in a, game, a few games where we perhaps shouldn't. The, the opening day season lost, uh, the opening day of the season lost to Watford. Stings, even though we fought back, it doesn't matter. The, the three points were left, or the point at least was left on the table. And when you come to the season, is that three points going to be the difference between, you know, ninth or qualifying for the Conference League, which I think is a competition a club like Aston Villa should respect despite the disrespect it gets. Um, I'd like that. If we could if we could get into a position where next year I'm moaning about being knocked out by a team in Iceland, I think that would be the true perfect marker of Villa's progress. So I'd really like that. Um, if we could challenge, push above and surprise a few people, um, I'd really like that. At this point in the season, you've had plenty of time to see the players that you brought in in the summer. So, uh, who are you interested? Uh, sorry, who who do you think has stood out in particular amongst your signings from the summer? So, I look at these names. There's some big names there: Danny Ings, Twanzebe, uh, Young Buendia. Um But I look at the names like Finley Forndike and Caleb Chukwemeka and Timmy Rockingham as people who you know the the making of Aston Villa now is how they how they will blood these youngsters Finazaz has made a name for himself uh, on loan Timo Rugbenham has been kicking on to join the first team um, Caleb Chukwemeka hasn't had that chance but the names that really catch the eye there apart from Buendia and Young and Bailey and Ings and Twanzebe are, are these youngsters I'm really excited about the crop of youngsters but if you you want a more serious answer it should be Emmy Buendia and Ings and Bailey but the name that I look there and the one that has impressed me the most is Ashley Young because uh, he probably joins as an opportunity cost signing considering he was joined, potentially joining Burnley or Southampton or a club you know, around Villa, you know, potentially even a, a Leeds. Um, Villa buy, take him on, take his contract on as a, a free transfer and they, those clubs don't have that opportunity and yeah he might be a backup left back Aston Villa actually he's played uh, he started games uh, across the pitch for Villa and it's his mentality as well like he's like a he's Stephen Gerrard's kind of avatar on the pitch um, Tyron Mings is the captain but Ashley Young is certainly one of the leaders and you see a lot of that uh, it, it, a lot of the game goes for Ashley Young and yes he isn't probably scoring or being the creator or the wing wizard he was as one of Villa's kind of best Premier League players in his first stint but he certainly found a way to kind of reimagine himself as kind of a, a bit of a bastard, if I'm honest. Um, he's a he's a veteran, and uh, he's something. He's a he's a player I'm really enjoying because in, under Dean Smith, he was kind of knocking about. He'll be a substitute. Stephen Gerrard doesn't stop talking about the impact and influence of Ashley Young. It's really important. Uh, but I also wanted to focus on Emmy Buendia, who had a bit of a rough start. Uh, under um under under Dean Smith, um, he still hasn't really kicked on under Stephen Jared, but we're seeing glimpses more and more of the player he should be, and that successor to Jack Grealish as that ten, uh, number ten, sorry, not the specific role. Uh, really enjoying kind of the grit he brings to that role because he's a he's a small guy, um, but there, there's a fire about him, and we're seeing that come out more and more. Let's talk a little bit about the differences between Dean Smith's Aston Villa and, and Stephen Gerrard's Aston Villa, particularly tactically. What have you noticed so far in the differences between the way that the two teams play? We seem a, a lot more compact and narrow. I feel the the kind of tired analogy would be that under Dean Smith, we didn't have a handbrake. We were we were often gunko. 
And, you know, full credit to Dean Smith and the way he wants to play football. I think that's how every team should play football. It's not a real, realistic proposition for most teams to, to play in that manner. Um, you know, you, you see your, your your teams go with that high line and, and get tore apart and go with that press constant pressing in and get tore apart. We, we know, we both know how that goes when it doesn't go well. Um, Stephen Gerrard seems to, there seems to be a handbrake there. He seems to be a bit more pragmatic, not without removing that attacking flair. I think, Something he got criticised for when we faced Liverpool was they Villa just didn't turn up to play football. In all honesty, they they turned up to stymie Liverpool, which is probably what you should do against you know probably the best team in the world. If we if one of the best teams in the world, if we were completely and utterly honest, um, the, the chances that you will go out there and play football against them and not get totally battered is uh something Villa got lucky on last year uh, with the, with the seven two. If we're completely honest, that game could have went a very different way. A few things didn't turn up. We basically if we didn't get a lucky bounce here or there. Um, but Steven Gerrard against Man City against Liverpool has shown that he he there is a, a, a bit more of pragmatism about it and he can plan for opposition. I think that's helped obviously by Michael Beale. I think the uh player probably if you're looking at a player who changed almost in an instant under Gerard is marvellous Nakamba. He's he's probably out for the rest of the season. He was unlucky to get a knee injury against Liverpool. Um, he's our defensive midfielder, a bit of a tough tackler, um, but someone where there's been questions about his ability in doing anything else other than tackling. Uh, it seems like Gerard and Beal kind of instructed him and coached him in a, an, almost an automation of some passes. Uh, so he, he was left, you know, we, we, he was, he was basically a much more drilled player rather than probably operating under the trust and instinct of Dean Smith. Uh, Nakamba was a weak link often at times. He could do the tackle, but he would do a, he would pick the worst pass possible. Looks like Beal and Gerard have actually instructed him uh, in a manner of play or up until his injury where the passes were a lot more simpler and he was a lot more effective. Uh, and I say simpler, not in a, almost negative sense it was you know the 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 easiest pass pass before him and sometimes there'd be a bit too much thinking and not enough you know the the instinct wasn't there the the drilled coaching probably wasn't there where it is now so I feel like there hasn't been a massive tactical difference I think it's more the the system is similar it's more compact it's more pragmatic and there seems to be a bit more focus on the individual players and their role in that system but one of the uh Little highlights that I've seen is the um, switch to two kind of tens. This is the roll tens, um, which he kind of employed at, at Rangers, uh, which I didn't think would work in the Premier League, but he did it against uh, Man City. And that's how we kind of broke back into the game, moved away from the traditional kind of two out wide to two a bit more tucked in. Uh, in I think it was Khan Chukwemeka, possibly Buendia in that game. And uh, Carney Chukwemeka's through on goal, the, the prodigy, and he, you know that chance is made by that that, that tactical change. So, uh, yeah, uh, there's been a few been a few changes there, but nothing that has reinvented the wheel at Villa, John. Yeah, interesting hearing you talk about marvellous Nakamba. As you said, Gerald's largely played a four three three since he's come in. I'm interested in the the midfield orientations that he's used during that time because I've seen that he's played Douglas Luiz and marvellous Nakamba at the same time. Was this more like two defensive players in a more advanced state? Is that something that that he has within his his locker, Gerard, like the ability to make that midfield fit the games that he's playing? 
Yeah, it, 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 there's a lot of interchange there. I think against Man City, you saw when those t- the two tens were came came on. Douglas Luiz was almost out wide, and he was thriving out wide in, in a more advanced role. Um, under Dean Smith, it seemed like yes, Nakamba and Luiz could play at the same time, but there'd be a very similar role between the two of them. Whereas Nakamba was trusted to do almost all of the defensive work on his own. Um, of course, without Nakamba, we've seen a bit more. You know, flexibility there with Douglas Luiz settling into his older position and even John McGinn dropping deeper. But I feel like Gerard would trust a typical midfield for Villa would be it'd be Louise, McGinn, and Jacob Ramsey. He would trust all of those players to do the defensive role, to do the advance role, um, into almost interchangeably, um, because there, there is a, a lot of similarity. When you take Nakamba out of that um, equation, there's almost a lot of similarity with these players, despite how extremely... If you compare the playing style of Douglas Louise to the almost... <laughs> uh, I don't know how to explain how John McGinn plays football. Uh, <laughs> like, he's the best, worst footballer I, that, in existence. Uh, <laughs> like, he shouldn't be allowed anywhere near a pitch, but thus he's one of the most, you know, gifted technicians on that pitch, despite how ugly his, uh, his style is. Uh, well, I find it very attractive as an Aston Villa fan, to be fair, <laughs> what he's done. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it's uh, it's typical that Stephen Gerrard, the, one of the better midfielders, comes in and the midfielder, the midfield position is much stronger Aston Villa, where it, ha- it has been for so long, despite the talent there, a weak point. Let's talk a little bit about the, the striker position because Gerrard has exper- experimented with Danny Ings as a nine with Ollie Watkins out wide, but it seems as though he's switched now to using Watkins as an out-and-out striker. Is this what he'll stick with going forward? Yeah, Watkins, there's a lot to like about Watkins um, in the pressing. Almost he seems to become a complete forward. I said on a, another podcast that one of Watkins' best attributes is that I, I remember last season against Leeds when Bamford was surrounded by about four people and somehow he scored. And he did it twice. Um, Watkins almost has that about him now. Um, I think they're very similar players. But what Watkins has learned this season is almost to get out of an impossible situation with the ball at his feet. Like it's glued. Um, He can be surrounded by three or four defenders. And somehow he will barrel out of that cluster, that marking and that pressing to to contain the ball. So Watkins has really proved himself as a central striker. but the problem with that is Danny Ings, as you've uh, as you've brought up, you can't buy that player for that much money, and he's just a bench warmer. Um, Danny Ings and Ollie Watkins probably was the undoing of Dean Smith's time. Asked him because how do you f- fit these two players in? How do you fit them in with Leon Bailey and uh, your Bertrand Torre and your Emmy Buendia up front? How, how do you possibly do that with you know without leaving one out? And I think probably Dean Smith's undoing was trying to tweak that too much, whereas I think Stephen Gerrard isn't burdened by A, the sale of a Jack Grealish or B, the transfer decisions made before his time. So if he wants to bench Danny Ings, he will absolutely bench Danny Ings. But what I think what he realises is when Ings is in form, he can play that central striking role to a similar effectiveness as Ollie Watkins. And Ollie Watkins can be out wide. Um, but under the formation that Stephen Gerrard likes, one of the formations he likes to employ is that you will probably, if Watkins is quote unquote out wide, it'll be more so that he's part of a tight front three which is essentially three strikers and uh, Ings will be in the middle. But we rarely saw that um, Ings hasn't been in the best form and Watkins has been really decent so far. So I can't see, uh, you know, rotation beckons, but if he is to pick his perfect formation right now, based on the players available to him, Ings is probably on the bench and Watkins is up front. 
Emi Buendia is someone who is beloved by this podcast in particular, and we were desperate to get him at Leeds because he would obviously fit the Leeds system so well. Absolutely. You mentioned already that Dean Smith didn't seem to like him as an option, or he didn't play well under Dean Smith anyway. Uh, but Gerard has been using him a fair bit. So do you like what you've seen of Buendia under Gerard? Yeah, he was all right under Dean Smith. I don't think it was that Dean Smith didn't like him or didn't use him. He he, he was used. I just think he had stu- he stumbled in that time. There was some great highlights. I think his goal against Brentford stands out, you know, magical. Um, some of the runs, some of the passes he's unlocked, but it wasn't happening enough to sustain a run of form under Dean Smith for the whole entire club. It wasn't enough to galvanise the club, basically, under Dean Smith, whereas I think Gerard's a bit uh, a bit more patient with him, A, because it's not his signing, B, He's got a clean slate of, of options he can choose if he wanted to go for Amor Al-Ghazi, Leon Bailey before his injury. He could do so and he wouldn't feel necessarily obliged to play Emi Buendia. But he's a player who has kicked on in a few different roles under, um, under Gerard. Again, what I like about Buendia is the fire he takes to the game. Norwich surrounded him. Uh, in our in our last match, it was a bit of a fiery encounter, if you can say that at Carrow Road, and they're they're a, they're a fairly nice nice lot down there. Um, but yeah, of course, Brendier got the uh, reception that all returning players might have. Uh, Norwich called him one of some Norwich fans say he's one of the best footballers to ever play um, for the club, which I think Tim Sherwood may disagree with. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Brendier, like what the fire he brings to the kind of a playmaking position, he's got a bite about him. He's got an energy, he's got a work rate and an ethic. I think those rather his, than his tech, technical abilities are what are shining through at the moment, but I hope both can kind of meld and we see the Buendia that everyone knows is there. In terms of the January window, we're getting pretty close to it now. Do you think the Villa are going to spend any money now that they've got Gerard? Is there is there any players that you think that he'll want to bring in or positions he'll want to improve? Or do you think the, the club will be happy to leave things as they are until summer? The biggest transfer option that stands out is uh, replacing Marvellous sorry, Marvellous Nakamba. Um, his injury is a midterm one. He'll be out to the end of the season now. Um, so I don't know whether it's a, place, a permanent replacement, a long-term replacement or a, a loan replacement or, a, you know, in that long-term replacement, what I meant is a competition option to that defensive uh, midfielder. But when people, in a, before Gerard's time in that, in that summer transfer window, what they wanted was a battling defensive midfielder. Uh, one that didn't actually end up arriving. So I don't see how that would have changed now. Um, Nakamba was making that shirt his own. He's injured. That's the reality of the situation. So the the realistic option is to buy a defensive midfielder. Let's move on to talk about the, the game itself. How do you feel about facing Leeds at the moment with our poor run of form against the big sides and our injury crisis? Do you think that you're getting us a good time or do you think we'll be more motivated to get a most needed win? It's almost like a it's the best time to play Leeds and also the worst time to play Leeds because under Bielsa, I know he would be very set in these ways in terms of the formation he played, in the general style of play. Um, he might not neg- change that much for Aston Villa like he probably hasn't done uh, with with Arsenal and Manchester City and you know the, the man himself the legend himself probably doesn't feel he needs to despite despite what's going on but if you know if there's a manager that can bring that side back without reinventing the wheel it certainly is Marcello Bielsa I feel um, you know a living legend of the game one of the biggest footballing brains going now I don't need to talk, talk to you guys about Marcelo Bielsa but Bad form is bad form. And sometimes, as we know at Villa, there is almost no way out of it until there is. And that can come games, games, weeks, weeks, months, months down the line. So I am looking forward to playing Leeds. I think I'm getting, you know, we're getting you at a good time. Um, 
I'm absolutely sure you'll be motivated to get a win, but you probably were motivated to get a point against Man City and probably motivated to get a, a point against Arsenal and that it just didn't play out. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be an entertaining game of football. I think it's two teams that respect each other. It's a manager who wants to prove himself or against a manager who doesn't need at all to prove himself. So I think Gerald will be right up for this and I think it'll be a really good game of football knowing what both sides can do. Yeah, no, for sure. And it certainly will be a, an interesting acid test for where Villa are at, I think, um, this game against Leeds. So uh, it will be interesting for you guys, I guess, from that point of view as well. In terms of injuries and suspensions, uh, obviously this game is supposed to be played on Tuesday, I believe, next week. And there's a lot going on in terms of both COVID, whether or not the game will even be on, uh, etc. But um, as far as you know, what what is it looking like for you, injuries, uh, suspensions, and I suppose COVID-wise at the moment? So COVID's a tough um, call because none of the players have been named with COVID, which is you know probably an ethical decision more than anything. Uh, Nakamba's obviously out, which it's a blow. I'll be completely honest. He's out for about 12 weeks, so three to four months' time. So if he returns, it'll be right as the season's going out. So you can write him off, as we've already said. Uh, Leon Bailey, out until after Christmas, I believe. Uh, Morgan Sanson had a uh, an illness. Uh, Amor Algarzi had an illness. So uh, backup keeper Jed Steer had an illness, probably COVID uh, for those three. So they're touch and go um, to be honest for Boxing Day, uh, let alone Leeds. Uh, but they should should be fine if the game goes ahead uh, when we're expecting it to do so. Um, Birch and Trory is probably the one returning. I don't know if he will feature against um against Leeds though because they're all coming back well this player is coming back right at the time when we're playing so I don't think he's dropped straight into the line especially with the options the options we've got um suspension I'm not hmm I think John McGinn's due respect to suspension I don't think it's coming up though um I think he, I think if he if we played against Burnley he'll probably be out for uh Chelsea so uh you, you might want to keep an eye on the uh Boxing Day fiction to see if he picks up a yellow card would you like to hazard a lineup? <laughs> uh, okay, it, it's it's a tough one because a there's a game to play in between this. Uh, really, I'm really not doing your audience justice here, John. Uh, to be honest, um, there's a game to play in between this, and it could be suspended. So we don't, we you know, we, we don't know. But um, Emmy Martinez will obviously start in goal. The uh, fullback will have Matty Target in alongside Tyron Mings and uh, the classy Ezri Konza. Matty Cash, the Polish cafe, will be at right back. Um, the midfield, it will probably be, I can't see rotating even if you're able to play on the 26th. I think Gerald would expect them to line up for the 28th because Leeds, you know, every team has to play. Those Every team has the same problem, essentially. Uh, he'll have Louise McGinn and uh, Ramsey. And he might bring in, um, he might actually play Watkins and Ings for this one. Because I think, yeah, I, f- I think with the injury, Bertrand Trower probably wouldn't come back in time. Mm, but he might go with Ashley Young. Okay, so that front three, I, f- I think I'll leave Ings out and I'll go Young, Watkins and Wendia. Cool. And uh, on this podcast, we don't ask for predictions. But what I am interested in is where you expect the game to be won or lost on Tuesday. In the centre of midfield. Um that battle between oh, probably if we're predicting the, the game in between probably two stricken midfields tired midfields um, but Villa's midfield still has a lot to prove um, it was the weakest part of the team until Gerard joined um, that's where the game could be won and lost for us I think if you're able to get past uh, or get the better of Louise and McGinn and Ramsey you've got a straight shot essentially to uh, Tyron Mings and Ezri Conza who are two extremely decent defenders at 
you know what, what you know when when their backs against the wall they can block whatever they want it's just what what will Tyrone Mings do under pressure to put the team under more pressure essentially um and what will Ensby Conza do to fix that or vice versa um oftentimes it doesn't go away but yeah center midfield um us against you guys what that's usually where it's falling apart for Villa like pressing that stretch in the midfield against Leeds um but we'll we'll have to see well, James, it's always a pleasure chatting to you. What's the best way for our listeners to catch what you're putting out? Because you are putting out a lot of football stuff at the minute. I'm at Jamo Rushton on uh, on Twitter. That's one M. And uh, I think I've had a few few good leads followers uh, in my time there. Uh, so from this podcast, I think uh, the, your man from the Kaiser Chiefs followed, <laughs> followed me, which is uh, that was very nice. So uh, you told my mum about that. She she loves she loves that band. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, she was buzzing. Um, you know, it's it's been brilliant. I mean, I absolutely adore uh, Marcelo Bielsa. Of course, I adore this podcast. I adore the culture that Leeds have. Love Calvin Phillips, but I really just hope we beat you, unfortunately. But apart from that, I hope you have a good season. After I don't want to see, you know, the, the Premier League needs Bielsa and it needs Leeds. I'm not going to disagree with that. Thanks so much again for coming on, James. No worries, John. Anytime. <laughs> Okay, John, before we move on to talk about the uh, team and the tactics, I think it's important that we don't underestimate Villa, isn't it? And they're not an elite team, but it's going to be a tough game, isn't it? Yes, Stephen Gerrard has enough um, uh, of a... What's the what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Stephen Gerrard has enough of an, a reputation within the game now. He's built that up. He's spent time at, at Rangers. He's managed to turn that team around and... and you know, invert the 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 normal ordering of Celtic Rangers after a point when Celtic had gone uh, for a, for a very long period without winning the league. Um, he is backed by uh, an assistant coach called Michael Beale, who is um, very well respected within the football industry. Um, very interesting guy. If you get the chance to listen to uh, the Training Ground Guru podcast uh, with him, it's worth worth checking out. Make a note of that. <laughs> And yeah, they're, they're going to be playing solid football. He's come in at Villa. They've they've basically turned things around. I think they've played six games and the only two games they've lost have been against Manchester City and Liverpool, which is a pretty decent um, indicator that you're you're not a bad side. Uh, and those games, I think they lost by narrow margins, 1-0 and 2-1, I think, roughly. So um, we... we this is a team that aren't going to roll over. They they are going to be very well tactically drilled. We actually spent um, an hour last night in the All Stats on we Discord watching a game together, um, and it was it was fascinating watching watching that. I think you watched the Norwich game as well, Darren. So, yeah, I watched the Norwich game as well. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, they're playing very very sort of tactically disciplined mid block football. Very very compact, very hard to break down. They are happy to drop into low blocks against teams that are. Are causing them problems and and they're hard to break down there but they they also have a, a really a really fun front three who with 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 some good players in um and and they can cause problems as well on the on the counter attack um and yeah i think they they they're, they're going to be a tough tough game i think if people are expecting this to be a, an easy one then they they're going to be in for a bit of a surprise Mm, okay, so in terms of the structure, Villa are likely to play a four-three-three. So again, Leeds will line up in in a four-one-four-one. So there's there's nothing hugely surprising from from that point of view. And I guess in terms of the team itself, it's again it's hard to predict because we've got a fixture in between, and we don't know who you know whether we'll pick up any additional injuries or knocks in that. But it'll be as close to the team that you would expect to see or hope to see as as you can imagine, uh, as 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 Bielsa will be able to get it. 
So um, and we'll just have to see what what it needs to kind of work around that to to get a team out. But um, so I don't think there's a huge amount to say about that stuff, is there, John? Just now? No, no. I think it's it's this is going to be mainly sort of focus on the way that that Villa are going to approach the game and and how we should. So to a degree, Gerard seems to be a fairly pragmatic and maybe. I don't think reactive is quite the right word, but he's able, he's adaptable in terms of his, his approach. Like you said, he's, he's happy to drop into a low block, but wants to start from a kind of defensive mid block, four three three, quite quite narrow. Um, so, how do you think Villa will approach this game? Will it just be those things? Will it be a four three three mid block? And what problems do you see them causing for Leeds? Yeah, so this is a game that I see potentially um, following the sorts of blueprints that we've seen in in previous Brighton games, um, which is obviously going to strike fear into the heart of the listeners. But um, what we're going to see is, as you said, a, a smart mid-block, um, which is very narrow in in the forward moment so the the midfield three stay very narrow the mid the front three have been staying very very narrow recently as well and the idea is generally to when you're attacking is to stay narrow and and, and give your your fullbacks a lot of space to run into um and defensively to funnel oppositions down into the wide areas and actually the fullbacks still push quite high i thought defensively onto onto the wide player and then your 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 back your back four almost becomes like a back three. Um, so it's, it's very compact and, and you'll see, so um, for example, on the left, they'll have Matt Target who will push forward onto Rafinha presumably. And then you'll have Tyrone Mings almost filling in, in, in the channel behind him and looking for if anyone plays that ball into the channel to, to sort of close it down. Um, and you'll see the, the the whole of the defense. You'll see probably the, the, the other full back on the other side, Matt Cash, um, almost on the line of the the center spot vertically so so getting very very compact there um and yeah the, when they get the ball they will try and decompress by by going um into pushing the fullbacks really forward and you'll see you'll see the outside center midfielders in the three dropping into the space between the the um one, the center back and the fullback basically so you'll you'll see, and and the fullbacks go pretty high at the same time so it's not like one side is going to go and the other side will drop they'll they'll push up one of the midfielders will will fill in to help out and um yeah they they they'll they'll look to to cause problems that way and you, w- w- one thing i did notice from the watchback is that they also like to they they they're also doing that positional play thing of uh, that you see with Pep Guardiola where they spread the lines so you'll have your fullbacks pinning um the the opposition fullbacks um to the to the as wide as possible creating space for them their front three then to sort of sit between the lines of the of the fullback the center uh, center back so yeah it, that they'll that, that that'll be generally how they approach their game I think in terms of our possession so like we said they, they defend in a, in a narrow and when I like when I say narrow I mean it's like barely beyond the width of the center circle really isn't it that the, the, the midfield and the strike strikers sit um so I expect to see a lot of our center backs sort of passing the ball to each other um and it I, I feel like it could be a frustrating day unless we can move them around John so how how are we gonna how are we gonna do that how are we gonna try and disrupt this kind of mid block yeah that, that's that's really the big question for me is like how how does our build-up look is it going to be one of those games where we as you say ponderously passing the ball around at the back and not really making any headway in in wide areas and I, I suspect that it will be it will be it will be one of those games where because they are so adept at, at sort of funneling wide and pressing smartly in wide areas that it will feel like we're not generating a lot um, and and so it's I think that's going to be the order of the game it's going to be us trying to progress the ball in wide areas and them trying to win it back and, and then decompress quickly and and, and spring uh, attacks from from there 
But I think in terms of their possession play, they are fairly patient, aren't they? And that they are happy to, or at least in the Norwich game, I can only speak to the Norwich game, but they, but they seemed certainly, you know, fairly patient, happy to build up quite slowly, um, and happy to try and move move Norwich around and to try and progress up the up the pitch as a unit. Um, so I, I I guess that leads me to think about how involved our press will be in the game, or whether they'll just take a more pragmatic probably slightly more direct approach against us and, and try and take our press out of the game. Yeah, we watched 15 minutes of the Manchester City game as well, just to see how they performed under a high press. And um, yeah, look, against City, they didn't have the ball that much. I think it was, the first 15 minutes was like 20, 80% possession. Um, but they, they, they were quite happy to try and just, not, not necessarily build up, but sort of pass the ball across their defence to the fullbacks and the fullbacks hit the channels. And then they've got some fairly good ball carriers, dribblers. Um, obviously, Ollie Watkins is a great is a great out for, for that kind of play. Um, you've got Emi Buendia, who, who's also pretty useful in those situations. And then players like Jacob Ramsey, who is, again, a really good ball carrier. So I'm, I'm interested to see who their front three is because they they have been playing Ashley Young as a, as a wide forward. Um, and I wonder whether or not they'll maybe use Jacob Ramsey who they've been using as a centre midfielder as as a forward option just again because he's he's pacey he's quick he's good on the ball uh, and he'll he'll be good for those sorts of um, counter attacks so I wonder whether or not I, I suppose for me I'm interested to see whether or not they think they can control the game enough to be able to do that patient build-up or whether or not they'll they'll just sort of see this as well if we can if we can um, sort of absorb pressure from Leeds and then win the ball back and then just make make the most of them being in a in, in a fairly open defensive configuration at that moment uh, they might just go with with a more of a man city game plan which is you know sit a little bit deeper absorb pressure and then try and hit on the counter attack and you've mentioned direct ball carriers i noticed Conta doing that a bit versus norwich carrying the ball deep into their half you've mentioned ramsey obviously ollie watkins is really good at it that's that's going to be something that causes a causes a threat for us throughout the game isn't it those direct runners i think so and i think this is an interesting thing when you're thinking about gerard's tactical approach like as you've said you've described him as reactive and and, and i know exactly what you mean by that which is that he's i think that he makes decisions based on the opposition yeah um and he's happy to he's happy to let the opposition dictate play and i doing something like having you know having a really disruptive like ball runner from from a center back area is something that sometimes reactive coaches might not do so much but as you said it's Ezri Konsa is definitely doing it versus versus Norwich, so it'll be interesting to see how happy he is to have his players just pick the ball up and, and run as a as a sort of first port of call in, the, in that decision making, rather than what they're doing, which you've said is, is sort of pass the ball around. Um, Emi Buendia is going to be interesting in that, that that respect as well because he he's almost playing as a um, I think Claudio said in the in the watchback yesterday as a sort of an enganch player, so just sort of dropping in and helping the build up, and then you've got the other two almost becoming like. Uh, centre forwards in their own right um, and that means that, that one Buendia will be will be moving laterally quite a lot from one side to the other um, and and pulling apart the, the the defensive line but but also that that will give them the option to to do a little bit more patient build-up as well so yeah I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested really to see actually how how Villa approach this game uh, and whether or not they will be making these sorts of bold calls uh, and, and fairly aggressive calls or whether or not they'll just be happy to to sort of sit sit and, and absorb pressure and and just sort of 
push back but it's one of those it's one of those things that's been hard to judge with us this season right there's some games where you think that we should play okay and then it's just not transpired that way and we've looked like we've labored like i'm thinking of games i mean even the norwich game i thought we we looked a little bit that way but particularly games like the southampton game as well where you expect us to to go into that game and and have a fairly good run of it and and in the end the opposition look look a little bit more dominant i think this game could go either way it could be one of those games where we where we look in control but we don't generate anything or it could be one of those games where you think we just we just don't look like making anything at all i agree i think it could be a could be another difficult afternoon um so where where will the game be won and lost in the end do you think john wide areas if we can progress the ball in wide areas well and force them back then then yeah but then at the same time like it then becomes a game against a low block and we, we know that we have issues there but I think as you mentioned in a recent podcast like the low, the low block seems to be the, the, the least worst of our enemies at the moment <laughs> the right? worst. yeah and we're hoping to be the fourth or fifth least worst team in the division this season <laughs> or least worst aren't we right <laughs> least worst, excellent okay excellent good stuff um, so I guess we'll be hopping on the spaces before the before both of these fixtures to chat about the, the lineups when they come out so 15 minutes after the lineups are announced, feel do join us on on Twitter on the on on, on the spaces and uh, <laughs> and John John and I will be having a natter about the about the team lineups and and seeing whether there's anyone there that we want to also engage in conversation uh, in that uh, and I think we're planning to do some of that afterwards as well. John, yeah, I think rather than doing podcasts over the next week, we're um, well review podcasts, review review podcasts. Um, uh, we will be. We will be just having spaces, I think, instead, and we'll get a few of us on and just have a chat through the game, um, just to save us a little bit of time because uh, it is important that people have a rest over Christmas. It certainly is excellent. Okay, and what did Hobbsy put out this week? I think he's put a nice video out this week, hasn't he? He has. He's put a Brendan Aronson video. So we're not we're not going to talk about the Arsenal game ever again. So um, Josh has been having a look at the uh, RB Salzburg player Brendan Aronson, who has been linked with Leeds, and uh, yeah, has been quite fun. Um, to 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 check out what he's doing, and I should say at the moment the the Discord is is booming. Um, the the All Stats aren't we Discord? Um, one of the things that we're doing is doing scouting sessions where um, I just share my screen and we watch some video clips of of players. Um, so we did that with uh, another RB Salzburg player who was linked. Um, uh, to, with with leads as well so if that sort of thing sounds interesting then head over to to our patreon www.patreon.com forward slash all stats aren't we and that will give you access to the discord and you'll be able to join a community of of, of lovable chaps mm, yeah and I, i'm trying to uh, shake off some of my boomer stuff and, and have a look <laughs> at the discord but the spaces and the discords mate what is the, going the spaces on? and the discord and and that there are there are yeah I don't know whether I've got time in my life for another forum at the moment, but I've certainly been in and said hello, and that, that was that was a good start. <laughs> um, excellent. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the podcast today. So do enjoy the games over the festive period, and um, thank you for all your support and for listening to us all year. We really, really do appreciate it, and, and for your feedback and engagement, it's been, been really great. Um, John, have a great Christmas period, my friend, and... Uh, Yep, to all of our listeners, have uh, well, what shall I, how shall I phrase it? <laughs> all appropriate seasonal greetings to you. Happy Christmas, everyone!
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market